Chapter 19. Encourage Others to Come Up with the Right Idea Inducing the other person to come up with the right idea is far more powerful as a motivational tool than telling them the right idea. Warren is famous for hiring people and then not telling them what to do. Instead, he lets them set their own goals and standards. Invariably, they set the bar higher than he would have. Warren's managers would say that even though he never tells them what he expects from them, they know that he expects a great deal. His silence induces his managers to imagine that he expects a lot, and this becomes the reality that drives their performance. Tell someone to do something, and it becomes an order. No one likes to be ordered about. We naturally resist anyone who gives us orders. However, if it is our idea, we treat it as gospel and act on it with purpose and conviction. We are in control. A perfect example is a motivational story that Carnegie used to tell about an auto dealership sales manager who, after many failed attempts at motivating his salesman, finally called his sales team together and asked them to tell him what they expected of him as a manager. As he listened to their answers, he wrote them out on a blackboard. Then he asked what he had a right to expect from them. They spoke right up, saying that he could expect them to be honest, hard-working team players and that they would show initiative and optimism. They would set their own standards. Did they live up to them? Not only did they live up to them, they far exceeded them, bringing in record sales. It's a very simple concept that is easy to put into action in our everyday lives. Here are a few examples. Instead of ordering someone not to do something, illustrate the negative consequences of doing it. Don't swim in the lake becomes, there are crocodiles in the lake and they like to eat little children. The child is then induced to thinking of crocodiles eating him, which compels him not to swim in the lake. Instead of ordering someone to do something, illustrate the positive consequences of doing it. I want sales production to increase becomes, if sales production increases, it will make me happy and I'll be able to pay bigger bonuses at Christmas. The workers realize that an increase in sales will make for a happy manager and bigger Christmas bonuses. If you're wondering how to better manage your children, try using the same method. Sit your children down at the beginning of the school year and ask them what they expect out of you in the coming year. List their expectations, discussing them as you go. When you are finished and are comfortable with their expectations, agree to them. Then ask what you can expect out of them. You might just be shocked at how demanding they can be of themselves. Ask questions instead of giving direct orders. As we just said, Warren is famous among his managers for never giving a direct order. He is also well known for asking tons of questions. Warren recognizes that no one likes to get a direct order, just as no one likes to be told what to do. 
Bossy managers are usually hated and are the least likely to inspire workers to excel. A direct order might work in the military, but in civilian life, it can cause lingering bitterness that drags on performance. Warren learned that great managers give their orders indirectly by a way of making suggestions. One way to make a suggestion is simply by asking questions. Asking questions makes your suggestion more palatable and often stimulates employees to come up with their own ideas for solving the problem. We are more willing to act on our own ideas than to act on others' ideas, especially when we are being ordered around. It is always better to let people figure something out for themselves. If that's not possible, then give them a little nudge in the right direction with a suggestion framed as a question. Here are a few examples of how to use a question to convert a direct order, which will offend employees, into a suggestion which will stimulate them to willingly act. Direct order. I want that job done by Monday. Suggestion. It would be great if we could get that job done by Monday. Do you think you can come up with a way to do that? Direct order. Slow down. You're driving too fast. Suggestion. You know the roads are rather slick. Do you think that if we slowed down that that would make it safer? Direct order. This is not the way to do it. Suggestion. Can you think of a better way to do that? Direct order. I want you to do it this way. Suggestion. Do you think that if we did it this way that it would turn out better? Direct order. When we go to the zoo, I want you to stay by my side. Suggestion. When we go to the zoo, can you think of any reasons why you should stay by my side? Warren seldom gives a direct order, but he is famous for peppering his managers with lots of questions. Now you know why. Chapter 20 Everyone Makes Mistakes. Admit It When we are wrong, we should admit it quickly and emphatically. Warren believes that when people are wrong, they should be right up front about it and admit it quickly and emphatically. To do otherwise would give the impression that we are trying to hide something or that we have neither the courage nor the integrity to admit when we are wrong. This kind of behavior leads people to mistrust us. No one can stand anyone who is always right and no one can stand someone who won't admit when they're wrong. And if they won't admit when they're wrong, what else are they lying about? The accounting books, maybe? Also, managers who don't or refuse to admit that they are wrong cause a kind of festering distrust among the employees. They become less respectful, less willing to follow, more distrustful of management's recommendations and guidance. Warren is always upfront about any and all mistakes that he makes is forthcoming with his managers when he blows it and is the first to admit to the shareholders when he screws up. And they love him for it. 
when he recently made a bad investment in a couple of Irish banks that cost Berkshire several hundred million, he was right up front about it. When he blew an investment in ConocoPhillips, an oil company he had bought into when oil was $140 a barrel, his error cost Berkshire $2 billion. But he didn't hesitate for a second to admit to Berkshire shareholders his mistake. He didn't try to blame someone else or say that other people had made similar mistakes. He just said he made an error in judgment and it was his fault. By admitting when he was wrong and being forthcoming about it, Warren wins the trust of his employees and shareholders alike, and at the same time avoids all the political fallout that has taken down great men since the beginning of time. Step 5. Managerial Pitfalls, Challenges, and Learning Opportunities The final chapters in this audiobook include some of Warren's important axioms regarding the dangers of borrowing too much money, employees breaking the law, good ideas gone astray, making mistakes, managing sycophants, missing opportunities, seeing the road ahead, and a few bits of wisdom for managing our own lives. All learn the hard way by experience. Weigh them carefully, as they will not only help keep you out of managerial trouble, they will also help get you out of it. Chapter 21 The Hidden Dangers of Making a Living on Borrowed Money The roads of business are riddled with potholes. A plan that requires dodging them all is a plan for disaster. Warren Buffett. Managers of businesses that have to borrow a lot of money are gambling that they won't hit any economic potholes in the road ahead. Their business plan requires dodging problems. But even the best-run businesses can't dodge problems forever if they are heavily leveraged. Banks are the king of leverage. They have to borrow all that money they lend out and most of that money was borrowed short-term and loaned out long-term. When those people who loan the money to the bank short-term want it back, and the bank can't pay it back, well, that's when things start to get messy. Economic change can offer lots of opportunity, provided we have the cash to take advantage of it. Economic change can also mean disaster if we have taken on too much debt to survive it. Life is full of economic change, always has been, always will be. Leverage is very tempting and always leads to trouble. Warren Buffett The temptation of leverage is that it can dramatically improve the performance of any business for the manager who learns how to use it. Let's say that in a normal year, the business you manage earns a $6 million profit without any debt. You have a business opportunity that costs $100 million, but it will earn $15 million a year. This sounds promising, doesn't it? The catch is that your business doesn't have the $100 million needed to finance the deal. 
Your friendly Wall Street bank is more than willing to loan you the hundred million if you agree to pay it ten million a year in interest. This means that after paying the ten million in interest, you will earn a net profit of five million on the fifteen million in new business. Add in the six million on the old business, and your company is now earning a total of eleven million. Make the deal, and you almost double your net earnings. Guess who gets the big bonus at the end of the year? You do, for your brilliant managing of the company's assets. With the Wall Street investment banks, the game of leverage was played out to an extreme. Borrow a hundred billion at five percent short term, and loan it out at seven percent long term, and suddenly your firm is earning. Two billion a year in profit, and the financial press is writing about your fifty million dollar salary. Now you know why managers tend to push their companies to take on as much leverage slash debt as they can possibly put to profitable use. However, there is a catch, and it's a big one. What happens if there's a recession and your company's business income makes a dramatic drop? To the point that you cannot generate enough money to service the debt. In this case, you would start burning up the company's net worth until either the economy turned around and the business improved, or you were forced to put the company into bankruptcy. When companies begin contemplating bankruptcy, the company's old management is usually the first to go. However. If the company hadn't taken on the hundred million dollar debt when the recession hits, all the company would have to do is cut back production to the point that it would meet the new lower level of demand. At which point it would start making money again. Yes, people would have lost their jobs, but the survival of the company would not be in question. When Warren looked at a company during the fifties and sixties, he always asked. How did it manage through the Great Depression? Did it do well, or did it fail? This told him a great deal about the historical nature of the company and its need to use debt. Warren still looks at the long-term historic performance of a company. He often mentions that companies that he has major investments in, like Coca-Cola and Wells Fargo, have hundred-year histories. These are businesses that not only survived the Great Depression; they are companies that are going to survive the current recession as well. But he still keeps a watchful eye on how much debt all the companies he owns carry, knowing that in hard times it can kill even the best of businesses. Warren's own Berkshire Hathaway has long avoided going into debt. If Warren can't pay for it with cash, he isn't interested. Warren even takes it further by letting cash pile up if he can't find a good value, which also protects Berkshire against hard times. In the heat of the Great Recession of '09, Berkshire was sitting on very little debt, and only a very comfortable cushion of twenty billion dollars in cash. This gave Warren plenty of restful nights and the economic firepower to take advantage of the lower stock prices that the recession brought. Old school managers like Warren are very reluctant to use debt to improve earnings. They lived through the hard times and have the scars to prove it. 
But in the last 15 years, the quick buck meant fast promotions and big bonuses. So the new generation piled on the debt. And in the Great Recession of 2009, many found themselves dangling over the abyss of financial failure and the sudden end of their briefly successful careers. Sometimes old dogs know all the tricks. Chapter 22 Do Good Ideas Always Bear Fruit? You can get into way more trouble with a good idea than a bad one. Warren Buffett This is Warren quoting his late mentor Benjamin Graham, who taught Warren to take heed of the potential danger of a good idea. Managers never act on ideas they know are bad. These are killed at the start. But a good idea is acted upon. And if it is successful, it becomes an institution. Subprime mortgages were originally a good idea. They allowed good people with marginal credit to buy homes and mortgage brokers to make money. But eventually, people with poor credit histories were qualifying for subprime mortgages. More people got homes and more mortgage brokers got even more money. Then one day, we woke up to a recession and people started losing their jobs, and they didn't have the money to make their subprime mortgage payments. Suddenly, the great idea started turning into a disaster. The same thing occurred with the insurance giant AIG, which sold insurance to banks and other institutions to cover the risk of default on a large number of investment-grade corporate bonds. AIG figured that the risk that thousands of corporations all over the world would go bust at the same time was practically zero, and that the premiums that the banks and institutions paid would never have to be paid out in claims. AIG raked it in, earning hundreds of millions in premiums. It was low-risk, easy money. Then one day, the bank showed up wanting AIG to insure several groups of subprime loans that had been packaged together like the corporate bonds had been. AIG figured that since writing insurance on the corporate bonds was making them a ton of money, writing insurance on a pool of subprime mortgages would also be profitable. But they didn't bother to sit down and really figure out the risk of a large pool of subprime mortgages going belly up. And then the recession hit, and hundreds of thousands of subprime mortgages started going into default, and prices on the subprime bonds that AIG had insured started falling. And as they dropped, AIG had to put up more and more collateral to support its subprime insurance contracts. Then things went from bad to worse and AIG ran out of assets it could put up as additional collateral. Suddenly, the company was at risk of defaulting on all of its subprime insurance contracts that it had sold to the financial institutions of the world. If AIG defaulted, all those banks and institutions it sold contracts to would be left with uninsured bond portfolios. 
This means the banks and institutions would be stuck for every dollar of decline in value that their bond portfolios suffered. A little like not having insurance on your house when it burns down. The prospect of AIG failing to post more collateral essentially threatened to render a great many of the world's financial institutions insolvent, which would have meant a complete collapse of the world economy which is why the U.S. Treasury stepped in with an $85 billion loan to AIG, because the entire game was on the table. In the end, a really great idea, insuring investment-grade corporate debt, got AIG into insuring pools of subprime mortgages, which turned out to be a really, really bad idea for AIG and the rest of the world. As Warren says, you can get into a lot more trouble with a good idea than a bad one. Chapter 23. How to Handle Employees Who Break the Law There is plenty of money to be made in the center of the court. There is no need to play around the edges. Warren Buffett this is the advice that Warren gave the managers of his companies after the fallout of Solomon Brothers' bond trading scandal. Solomon Brothers was a Wall Street investment bank famous for its bond trading prowess. In the late 1980s, Warren invested $700 million in the company's preferred stock. In 1991, two Solomon bond traders broke the U.S. Treasury's bidding rules for buying Treasury bonds. They were caught submitting false bids to the U.S. Treasury in an attempt to take a larger share of the new issue of Treasury bonds than the U.S. Treasury permitted. Solomon's management, upon discovering the illegal acts of its traders, was not forthcoming to the Securities and Exchange Commission or to the U.S. Treasury. This led Treasury to consider barring Solomon from trading in Treasuries, which would have been a certain death blow to the company and to Warren's investment. At the request of Solomon's board of directors, Warren stepped in as chairman of the board and immediately cleaned house at Solomon, removing its CEO and top managers who had been involved in supervising the traders who made the false bids. He also instigated an upfront policy with the U.S. Treasury, giving the investigators free access to Solomon's records. In the end, Solomon had to pay a hefty $290 million fine, but it got to keep trading in treasuries, which meant that it got to stay in business. Warren conveyed this lesson to his managers. While it is important to be aggressive in making money, you can make the money you need by staying within the boundaries of the law. When managers break the law in the name of making a quick buck, they risk losing their entire business with one single action. In Solomon's case, the bond trader bet the entire company for a slightly larger piece of the U.S. government bond market. As managers, we have to keep a watchful eye on our employees to make sure that they don't bet the store in an attempt to further their careers. And when we catch employees doing something illegal, the first call we make is to the authorities.
Not to make the call is to become an accessory after the fact, which is also a crime. It's a hard lesson that no one wants to learn firsthand. Chapter 24 Dealing with Your Mistakes I make plenty of mistakes, and I'll make plenty more mistakes, too. That's part of the game. You've just got to make sure that the right things overcome the wrong ones. Warren Buffett No one is perfect, and that includes Warren. Mistakes are part of the landscape, and there is no getting away from them. The trick to remember is that our successes in life must outweigh our mistakes. Reverse the equation, and we end up in trouble. Warren's mistakes include paying too much for a business, ConocoPhillips, and the then-named U.S. Air, buying into a sinking business, blue-chip stamps, and not buying into the right business at the right time. He initially thumbed his nose at Capital Cities Broadcasting. He also made some serious mistakes in the handling of his managers. He hired himself to run his insurance operations, which proved to be a bad idea, and to run Dempster Mills. The first manager he hired was a loser, the second one a winner. Yet he still ended up the richest man in the world. The way in which Warren deals with his mistakes sets him apart from the competition. He learns from mistakes, but he doesn't dwell on them. Those who dwell on their mistakes waste an enormous amount of time and energy that could be spent on developing new ways to make money and enjoy life. Mistakes are part of the past, and short of remembering their lessons, Warren says that they should stay there since all the money to be made is somewhere in the future. Chapter 25 Sycophants Are they an asset or a liability? Of one thing be certain, if a CEO is enthused about a particularly foolish acquisition, both his internal staff and his outside advisors will come up with whatever projections are needed to justify his stance. Only in fairy tales are emperors told that they are naked. Warren Buffett Leaders love to be loved, and in the process of needing to be loved, they surround themselves with yes people. Yes people make their living telling the boss how wonderful he or she is and how great his or her ideas are, even when that is not true. Why don't they tell the truth? Because that isn't their job. Their job is to say yes to the boss. For that, they are handsomely rewarded. Every business has sycophants, creeping around the corners, sucking up to the boss and reinventing the truth. Hire an advisor, and his job likely becomes to advise you to do what you wanted to do in the first place. Advisors who voice dissent too often are soon out of a job. Most people don't keep no men around. What's wrong with surrounding yourself with yes men? Nothing until the disaster that could have been foreseen drops into your lap 
and your board of directors is asking you to resign. Wall Street is littered with the remains of CEOs who let their yes-men convince them that their companies could manage the risk of derivatives. When the CEOs figured out that the risk couldn't be managed, it was too late for them and their companies. Warren's solution is to surround himself with as few people as possible. In fact, he often has said that his idea of a group decision is to look in the mirror. He also seeks the counsel of Berkshire's vice chairman, Charlie Munger, who says no ten times as often as he says yes. Warren thinks of Charlie as his no man, and while Charlie's no may never make him the life of the party, it has kept Warren from stepping into disaster on more than one occasion. Chapter 26. Learn from Missed Opportunities Since mistakes of omission don't appear in financial statements, most people don't pay attention to them. We rub our noses in mistakes of omission. Warren Buffett Even the best manager misses opportunities, and this often goes completely unnoticed. In the world of investing and in managing Berkshire, Warren freely admits he missed more opportunities than he should have. For example, he laments not getting in early on Walmart and Walgreens. When Warren does miss an opportunity, he likes to spend a little time contemplating why it didn't cross his radar screen or why he saw it but didn't act. He does this with the hope that this reevaluation of the situation will enlighten him enough that he won't repeat the same mistake in the future. In Warren's world, there are two basic kinds of missed opportunities. One, ones we missed because they weren't on our horizon, and two, ones we saw but failed to act on. These are the most frustrating because they were looking us right in the face. If the opportunity simply wasn't on our horizon, the solution is to expand our field of search. There is a whole world of business brokers and investment bankers that are more than happy to show us potential opportunities. As for the opportunities that we can see but don't act on, the most common reason for missing one is that we erred in calculating the risk involved. These are opportunities we would have liked to have acted on, but mistakenly deemed as too risky. Mistakes of omission due to miscalculation of risk are the easiest to understand. We took in all the information we had available and made a judgment call based on that information. If we don't have the right knowledge, we can't competently make the judgment call. This is why Warren lets the managers of his individual companies make even the biggest decisions regarding the companies they run. He trusts that they know their game better than he does. But mistakes of omission that occur because we didn't have our eyes open to opportunity are errors that speak to our management ability and our organizational skills. A good manager is always looking for opportunity and has put the necessary infrastructure in place to assist him. 
The best managers follow Warren's example. They examine the opportunities they missed, and they ask the hard questions as to why they missed them. Then, the next time around, they just might catch the brass ring instead of watching it slip through their fingers. Chapter 27 Bank on the Tried and True You don't have to think of everything. It was Isaac Newton who said, I've seen a little more of the world because I stood on the shoulders of giants. There is nothing wrong with standing on other people's shoulders. Warren Buffett One of the great errors of young managers is that they think they have to have an original idea or some stroke of creative genius to catapult them to the top. These brilliant ideas, more often than not, lead to costly folly. Warren has discovered that the best ideas in business and life are the ones that are tried and true, where the chance of failure is almost nil. Where do these proven ideas come from? They come from other people and businesses that have successfully put them to work. By studying successful businesses, we can get dozens of great ideas about how to do something right. And by studying unsuccessful businesses, we can learn how easy it is to do something wrong. Miles Davis, the great jazz musician, once remarked, Lesser artists borrow, great artists steal. The same can be said of great business managers. If we see a great idea, we should steal it and immediately put it to use. Where do we find these wonderful ideas? by studying the competition to see what they are doing right and what they did that was wrong. Rose Blumkin, who founded the Nebraska Furniture Mart in the 1930s, brought with her from Russia the simplest merchandising concept of discounting prices in the name of increasing volume, which she implemented at her store. The local established merchants refused to discount, and Rose took away tons of their business, so much, in fact, that they sued her for unfair trade practices. Her defense was simple. The other merchants charged too much. The judge ruled in Rose's favor, and the next day he and his wife went down to her store and bought carpeting for their home. Rose didn't invent discounting. She borrowed an idea that merchants were using in Russia and used it to make money in her new home in America. Jack Ringwalt owned and operated a small insurance company called National Indemnity in Warren's hometown of Omaha. Jack ran his company with a keen eye on costs and was fanatical about underwriting discipline. He would only write insurance if he knew it would make him money. If rates dropped, he simply stopped writing policies even if it meant having his staff sit around doing nothing, which he could afford to do because he had built up a surplus of capital during the good times. He once told Warren, There is no such thing as a bad risk. There are only bad rates. Jack made himself rich running his business this way, and when Warren bought national indemnity, 
He not only kept Jack's philosophy of disciplined underwriting in place, he put it into practice in every insurance company he has invested in since. Disciplined underwriting has allowed Berkshire to grow from being a small insurance company in Omaha to one of the largest insurance operations in the world. You don't have to stand on top of Mount Everest to know that it's high, and you don't have to be a genius to identify a great manager or a well-run business. But once you do, pay attention and start learning from the pros. It works for Warren, and it will work for you.